0: Welcome to the Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and my guest today is Dr. Jennifer Frontera. Welcome, Dr. Frontera.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Dr. Frontera, you are a neurocritical care specialist and a professor of neurology at uh, NYU, at the Grossman School of Medicine in New York City, right? So I think New York City has a special relevance for anyone that we're gonna talk about COVID today. And if you think about COVID, I think, you know, then you think right away about what happened in New York. So you've been there since the beginning. So first tell me your your background, and then we're gonna talk a little bit about the trajectory of COVID. And then we're gonna get to what I really wanna talk about which is something I read about a COVID neurology registry. So, how did a nice girl like you get to be uh, in the position that you're in? <laughs> um,
1: so, I, I I am from New York originally, and I I do love being here. Um, but as you said, we had a very uh, challenging spring. So, I'm a neurointensivist. I I work in the ICUs under normal conditions, and um, under COVID conditions, I also uh, was working in medical ICU taking care of COVID patients, which we're still doing now with our second surge. But um, this surge is nowhere near as bad as what we had in March. Um, it was, you know, I honestly describe it as as practicing disaster medicine. Um, you know, uh, patients in all over the place, a variety of different types of specialists caring for these patients, Uh, surgeons, podiatrists. Like, I mean, we were really calling in all of the troops. It was that busy. I'm sure you saw, you know, we had field hospitals outside, uh, patients in all different buildings that were not initially purposed to be hospitals that got repurposed in a very rapid period of time. Um, So it was certainly a challenging time. And I think we really learned a lot from that initial experience, um, which helped us during the second wave that we've been
0: dealing with recently. Um, Before we get into the details of the neurologic complications, I wanted to ask you a little bit, about uh, (laughs) vaccine hesitancy. I've been using this program to talk a little bit. In fact, Dr. Ken Tyler, I just had a nice discussion with him. Uh, Of course, he's a neurologist and a specialist in infectious disease, particularly neurologic infectious disease. And we talked about vaccines and it it seemed that we were both on the same uh, page regarding vaccines. So let me ask you, in New York City, where people really had a shoulder to shoulder sort of exposure to uh, what happens when you get covid is is does vaccine hesitancy is that really exist
1: um unfortunately it does um there there's certainly even in the healthcare system because you, you know we had access to vaccines as, as the first priority and uh, we we did have hesitancy even in uh, certain groups that had as much access to the vaccine as other groups did. So there, there are some uh, presuppositions about vaccination that are longstanding that I think um, we're kind of gradually working through. Uh, so so we, we, we do have um, barriers to um, utilization and access of vaccination that we, we definitely are working on in New York and New York is an extremely diverse community as you know. Uh, a lot of different attitudes and perspectives so it is something that we also uh have to work on despite the fact that i think a lot of people had direct personal experience with covid Um, that's interesting
0: what about you yourself have you been vaccinated if you don't mind me uh, oh yeah yeah Yes. um
1: i had no issues whatsoever i got vaccinated on a very busy day i was working in the icu and was completely fine
0: well, uh, early on, I started seeing articles about the neurologic complications of COVID-19. And, and of course I reviewed them and I think I gave a grand rounds on them, but you know, every it was a big project because every week there was a, another article <laughs> and it's like, yikes, this is like a full-time job just keeping I, up, right? I, was,
1: I, did, I did several grand rounds on COVID at different institutions and it, as someone described it as drinking out of uh, a, a fire hydrant, which is true. It's just, I, I, I mean, I had to really rejigger the talk almost every week that I gave it. So yes, I, I it's a, it's a moving target.
0: And uh, our hospital, actually, where I work, um, has set up a clinic now for uh, post-COVID infection neurologic. Well, post-COVID infection care some of which is people complaining of neurologic. So I had the idea, I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if if I could keep a track of, you know, what the complaints are? How many people come back with persistent headaches or fatigue or something? And then I saw somebody else is doing this on a national level. Tell me tell me about this program.
1: Yeah, so um, th- this is an NIH funded, NINDS, uh funded program. Uh, COVID, we call it COVID Neuro Data Bank and Biobank. And so it's a repository currently nationally, although we would like to expand it internationally also for data on neurologic complications in patients that have a COVID diagnosis either by PCR or antibody testing. So there has to be laboratory-confirmed COVID for these patients. And then we're interested in either new or worsened neurological um, sequelae. So uh, not only are we interested in people that developed, as you said, perhaps headaches or or some other complication after being diagnosed with COVID, but also folks, for example, with dementia who had worsened uh, trajectories of cognitive function after having COVID. For example, um, those are also patients that we're collecting uh, information on. We have we use something called a global unique identifier, which allows the data to still be de-identified, but we can link it to future longitudinal data, which I think is one of the important parts of this. So, you know, we're very interested in having folks um, who want to contribute to contribute there in a prospective fashion, or even if they already have a data set, um, they can uh, contribute that. And we do reimburse people for their time and efforts in this so
0: well well, first of all I had this great idea right and then I had no idea how to execute it because immediately it was like well I'm gonna need some help I'm gonna need somebody to 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 write all this down and save it in a computer and then as you point out it has to be anonymous to protect uh, patient privacy and uh, I mean, how, how does this get off the ground? How do you get funding? How do you get like a national thing? How does this actually happen? Uh,
1: so, you know, initially we did our uh, data collection locally. So we have a, a large data set that we collected in a short period of time because of the surge in New York. We have a data set of like 5,000 patients in the spring alone um, of which about 14% 600 and plus had neurological events during hospitalization and we track those patients we have six month outcomes and we're about to do our one-year outcomes on those patients um, and from that local institutional data set we crafted um you know uh, common data elements which uh, took a fair amount of time to do um, but now those are available and we asked that different sites, you know, we'll provide you with the, the the data bank, and then you can fill in these common data elements prospectively. But if you already have data collected that's similar to what we're looking for, um, on the back end we can recode it into our dataset. So effectively, it's done through REDCap, which is a free uh, databasing tool that most institutions have access to, um, and uh, it can be transmitted easily through that interface. So. Um, you know, if you're interested in sites that are interested in participating, we don't just want academic centers. We also are interested in, you know, community physicians who may see things that are different than what are seen in an academic setting. Um, you know, effectively, if uh, interested parties reach out to us basically by email, and then we can set them up and, and um, onboard them and so forth.
0: Okay, so I'm a very busy doctor, right? And I've got patients coming and going and I'm being interrupted. And one of my patients that day says, oh, yeah, I had COVID. And now, I don't know, my right leg is numb. So it's like, okay, so I examine him. Maybe he needs a test. We'll try and figure it out. And then, oh, yeah, there's this database. So, so what can I do in 30 seconds to somehow get this information to you? What, what do I actually have to do? Do I, do I send an email to jennifer.frontera or is there a better email than that? What do I do?
1: We have a, we have a website. Um, it's an NYU website, but it, it it's called, you know, NeuroCovid COVID uh, data bank and biobank. And that, okay. um,
0: I'll put that up here on the screen so people. Can
1: oh, sure. Answer. Yeah. Yeah. I will give you the, the, the website link. Um, so effectively folks can reach out to the, us that way who want to participate um, but there is there is a certain amount of time commitment on the end of the, the contributor so which we do reimburse for. Um, so you would have to go through and fill out the data elements that we're looking for there's some core elements so as not to be too onerous and then there's some more advanced elements, depending on uh, What kind of uh, patient it is and what institution is capable of doing, etc. So, um, Yeah, there is a little bit of commitment, certainly from participants, but, you know, which is why we do reimburse folks for their time and
0: effort. So if I submit a patient, then I'll get a check Mm -hmm. for $5 in the mail for my time and trouble, something like that.
1: Something something like that. that. (laughs) Not $5, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Maybe maybe a little bit more. But that money is actually coming from the National Institutes of Health, right? That's it's U.S. government. This is a U.S. government-funded... Um, investigator initiated, right? Uh, yourself and others. That I guess there were several academic institutions that got together and say, "Hey, we're already doing this, right? Let's let's nationalize or globalize this project so we can really make it work."
1: And you know, is actually the the parent site that's funded, um, and then we reach out to contributors effectively, and then you know pay the contributors for. The by by patient for the number of patient data that they submit, and then of course you know folks have the option if people are interested in publishing off of this data bank, um, they can you know submit proposals. We have a whole um, uh, writing uh, group and uh, that goes through different proposals and releases the data to those who want to publish it. For example, um, we also have a biobank I should mention. So biospecimens. Um, can be stored at NYU in our um, uh, biobank, or they can be stored locally, and then we'll keep a virtual uh, registry of different biospecimens. So people that want to do biospecimen projects, we really need the power of multiple institutions, can also apply for um, aliquots of those biospecimens uh, to run whatever project they're proposing. So that's another uh concept here and linking the data to the biological specimens um, really increases the power of this particular data set and it would allow us to drill down on some of the mechanisms of neurological phenomenon that we might see in the context of covid
0: and by biospecimen what do you mean
1: um it really could be Anything, anything even from like nasal swabs, which most people have for their PCR diagnosis, to um, serum, plasma, CSF, um, you know, uh, tissue specimens or brain specimens, um, all of those are options. And, the, you know, the reimbursement for biospecimens is different. If you want to do bio sharing, obviously it's more expensive to uh, coordinate and ship. Um, but of course we were, as I said, we're also keeping local registries. So, um, if people want to keep their biospecimens local, we can virtually register them. So it's a resource for other, um, investigators that want to, to, to utilize that kind of data.
0: So I'm just imagining there's some giant freezer in the basement of, uh, NYU with lots of little drawers <laughs> and numbers, and that's where all this stuff is.
1: Yeah, they they have a separate um, NIH funded um, core uh, biospecimen repository. And so we're just building off of that core that already exists. Um, So linking, and they have all their processes in place for um, de-identifying and archiving specimens and so forth, and specimen storage. So um, we're, we're building off of a platform that's already present.
0: Well, well, that's fascinating. So one of the medical issues that came up when I was reading about all of these complications, it was like, well, you know, these, a lot of these neurologic complications are really just neurologic complications of sick people, right, you work in the ICU, and when people are in the ICU and they're on a ventilator and they're sedated, all kinds of bad things happen to them and uh, that are neurological. They have muscle wasting, they can develop neuropathy, I, I, I'm not telling you the list because you don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, sort of giving some examples. They can have strokes. So, and these were all being reported as neurologic complications of COVID. And I, and I felt that was really yes, but no. In other words, these are not unique. These are just neurologic complications of being really, really sick. So how are you distinguishing those from something that might actually be a true... Neurologic complication that's virus specific, or, or is there such a thing?
1: A very good point, and I'm 100% on board with your perspective. Um, you know, what we saw, at least in our cohorts, was the vast majority of what we were seeing was uh, related to critical illness, um, or hypoxia, or really secondary effects of. Of COVID. So, either the hypercoagulable state that we know is associated with COVID, um, hypoxia, uh, septic encephalopathy, seizures that we know can occur in the context of sepsis or hypoxia. Um, the unique things we did see are, you know, which has been pathologically supported are, you know, some of the intercerebral hemorrhages. That were odd and occurred at the gray-white junction, or were multifocal, um, and you know some of this uh, plethora of gradient echo micro hemorrhages. Um, so, so the the pathological data that has shown endothelial abnormalities in COVID, though the the virus is has not been directly seen, and I'm just referring to the New England Journal article that came out about a month ago looking at endothelial injury. Um, it, you know. Again, we don't know the exact mechanism. I we don't think it's from direct viral invasion necessarily of the endothelial cells. But um there is something unique about the intracerebral hemorrhages. There might be something unique about the, the ischemic strokes also. We did notice that they seem to be uh more cryptogenic, perhaps uh embolic strokes of unknown source, so-called aesus type strokes. So there, there's something interesting about the neurovascular components post COVID, but, um, I agree not necessarily related to direct viral invasion, but rather secondary effects of the virus. Um, I personally, you know, looking at the encephalitis and meningitis literature, um, I honestly, if you take a really skeptical approach to this. There have not been reports that have convincingly shown direct viral causes of meningitis or encephalitis, right? Um, We just did a a review of CSF literature and COVID, you know, so it's like 400 papers or whatever. Uh, 5% showed, uh, were able to demonstrate PCR positivity, but Probably a lot of those related to blood contamination, of the CSF specimen. So you know, if you look at the cycle threshold for COVID, they're they're pretty high. And higher cycle threshold means that you have to amplify that much more to, before you can even detect the virus. And so it probably reflects contamination. And then if you look at CSF antibodies, which are not something you can commercially uh, run, right? You have you have to run it in one of your own labs. Sorry. Um, uh, Really, there's only one paper we found where people actually saw evidence of increased IgG uh, synthetic rate. Um, You know, and no one's really shown IgG or IgA or IgM titers for COVID in the CSF that are higher than in the blood. So most of what people are detecting is actually just blood contamination in the CSF. And then if you want to look at the neuropath literature, which is extensive, Um, there's issues with that also. So though, though people have PCR viral particles in the brain or done in situ hybridization and found these particles in the brain or done immunohistochemistry, um, there are a lot of issues about cross-contamination, particularly if you're looking at olfactory endothelium, where we know the virus goes, uh, cross-contamination of those cells with neuronal tissue. If you do bulk, um, PCR, that's an issue. And then, uh, you know, even when it does has been seen in the brain, the areas of virus do not co-localize with areas of neuropathological damage. All right. So, you know, do you have a leaky blood-brain barrier that's caused by hypoxic ischemic brain injury, and then the virus can just wander in? That's potentially what could be happening. It might not be virulence. Or, neuro, or direct neurotropism or damage caused by the virus. It might just be a secondary bystander that wanders in after you have uh, anoxic brain injury or some other primary mechanism of brain damage. So I think largely, I'm completely in your camp in the sense that most of what we see neurologically in the hospitalized setting is secondary effects of, of COVID. Now, in the outpatient setting, Um, when we start talking about long COVID and brain fog and cognitive issues, I think it becomes a little bit trickier and we have a lot less data in the outpatient setting than we do in the inpatient setting.
0: So Where I think- can uh, we learn, uh, you mentioned a paper that you had put together. Is that already, for those who want to sort of dig deeper into those findings you were talking about earlier, is that already published, that CSF, uh, cerebral spinal fluid paper? Or- yeah, that,
1: that, that just came out on PubMed. Um, our original article looking at, um, was a prospective study of neurologic complications in hospitalized patients, was published um, a few months back in Neurology um we have another paper looking specifically at encephalopathy that's coming out as well uh accepted but not on PubMed yet um and then we have some other you know our our prospective 6 month outcomes and some of our long hauler data is under review right now so um
0: so a lot to learn well we're running out of time i think we have a mixed message and uh, the first part of that message is if you have a patient with COVID or you have a specimen that you want to send to the repository so that it can be studied because they have a lot to learn this is a new disease right it's a new disease we don't really know what it what it does it's not like you know tuberculosis that we pretty much have that down all the different things it can do COVID is still kind of a bit of a mystery so if you have a sample please send it on the other hand if you haven't had COVID yet, please get a vaccine so we don't have so many samples. (laughs) <laughs> right, we don't we don't really want those samples, right? We'd rather that people stay healthy and stay out of the ICU, and we don't see so many complications. So, so that's our mixed message. If you have a sample, send it. But if you're not sick, get the vaccine so you don't get sick, and we don't we don't need to learn about every single potential complication of this disease. Let's let's see less of it in uh, instead of more.
1: I would 100% agree. I think that. The potential side effects of a vaccine, which are minimal, are vastly outweighed by the risks and the issues we've seen with people who have gotten COVID itself. So I can't agree more and stress more that vaccination is certainly the safest way to go.
0: Dr. Frontera, I wanna thank you for uh, joining us on the Art of Medicine. Certainly been uh, instructive and enlightening. And I will put up the uh, link information so that people who uh, have uh, potential cases to contribute will be able to contribute to uh, increasing our knowledge of this uh, new disease. Thank you.
1: Thank you.